The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain insight and information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. All right. Hello and welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. This is your host, John Whitbeck. I'm so excited and honored to be here today with Ken Falk, who is the founder of the Boulder Crest Foundation and the Boulder Crest Retreat, an incredibly important program for veterans and mental health in Loudoun County, Virginia, my home county. If you live in Loudoun County or anywhere near it, you are very familiar with this program and and it's a real honor to have you on the show, Ken. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks, John. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. So, Ken, uh, let's just jump right in with with sort of a general overview. For a lot of the folks listening may not have heard of this program, uh, tell us what the Boulder Crest Foundation is and, and about the retreat and, and other services that it provides. Yeah. So, Boulder Crest Foundation is a, a nonprofit organization that specializes in working with men and women who are suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, the aftermath of war, the transition to civilian life, the things that military members go through upon returning from war. Uh, we also have a program for first responders uh, that we're very proud of as well, and focused on first responders who are also dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And we have two beautiful locations, as you mentioned, the one here in Loudoun County in Bluemont, uh, Virginia. Uh, just down the road from the Bluemont Winery and Dirt Farm Brewing and Bears Chase Brewing. And then we have a second uh, facility that is just south of Tucson, Arizona. So we have these two beautiful retreats. And then where I'm sitting at today is what we refer to as the Boulder Crest Institute uh, for post-traumatic growth. And the term post-traumatic growth is really what the science of all of our programs are based on. And um, and that's really where we're at today and, and what we do as an organization. So my wife is a Tucson native, born born and raised in Tucson. What is the exact location of your second location? So should, should, your wife will know it. It's Sonoida, Arizona. Ah, yes. Which is about 45 to 50 minutes south of the airport in Tucson and uh, almost about halfway between Tucson and Mexico. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful spot indeed. And certainly the Loudoun County, you're there with the, some of the best views of the Loudoun Valley by far in the Bluemont area. So what is it about you personally that got you passionate about this type of work that you do with Boulder Crest? Well, you know, John, there's a handful of things. The first is um, I spent 21 years in the Navy. I was a bomb disposal uh, specialist, about 10 years of my military career doing traditional bomb disposal work. And then the second half of my career, primarily supporting special operations mission with Navy SEAL teams, Army Special Forces team. Uh, Marine reconnaissance teams, those types of organizations. And I retired from the Navy and moved, I was in San Diego when I retired and moved back here to Virginia, which is our, and started a small consulting company that ended up um, growing to be a fairly large company. We had about 500 employees when we sold the company. And, and that's really how I spent the majority of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan was supporting them uh, with a government contracting business. Early in the war, the first uh, bomb disposal soldier to lose uh, his limbs, to lose two legs, was a young army so uh, a guy who Sergeant Major was a very good friend of mine who was deployed to Iraq. 
that sergeant major called me from Iraq and asked me if I could meet this young man and his family at the airport. He knew I lived near D.C. So my wife and I went up to Walter Reed. We met this young man laying there with no legs and there was no family. Asked him where his family was. He didn't have a father. He didn't have any siblings, but his mom lived in Kentucky. She didn't have enough money for a plane ticket. One thing led to another. My wife and I got her on the phone, bought her a plane ticket, and got her bedside the following day to be with her son. Uh, as a veteran of the first Gulf War, I thought, you know, the war would be over in three months. First, first amputee I would see and hopefully the last. We did that 11 more times that year before we started a small nonprofit, which today is known as the EOD Warrior Foundation. And EOD is Explosive Ordnance Disposal, or what we call bomb disposal. So we started this foundation just for severely physically wounded bomb disposal troops and, uh, and have helped literally thousands of people uh, since 2004 transitioning home from war with both physical, uh, visible, and invisible kind of wounds of war. I, I don't, I'm not affiliated with that foundation anymore. I'm still very close because I founded it, but I, um, I rolled off as the chairman of the board of that foundation last year. But it was through the work with the families of severely wounded EOD personnel that my wife and I started bringing the, the parents primarily, uh, and ultimately the wounded soldiers themselves, but the parents initially out to our house here in Beaumont. And, um, what we realized was that you know, the, the hospital stays were very long for amputees. The average amputee would inpatient, meaning being in a hospital bed, for about three months to a year, and then they would outpatient for an additional year to three years. So at a minimum, an amputee would be at Walter Reed or Bethesda Hospitals for a year. So, and as they got healthier in their healing process, there were a lot of nonprofits doing things for them, taking them on ski trips and kayaking trips and trips to the beach and all these things. But early in the hospital stays, there wasn't a lot going on. Maybe the occasional dinner on Friday night and at an embassy or a nice steakhouse, but not a lot going on in the early stages of care. So we started bringing these families out to our house. Initially, it started as kind of weekend barbecues. We had families stay with us. Uh, and ultimately, the longest day we had was a father who stayed with me for just over a week. Uh, deer hunting out here. And one thing led to another. And, and my wife and I thought we could do more. When you have people in your home, no matter what you say to them, they always feel like they're guests. So we thought, well, if we could build them homes away from home, that's what we would do. And we ended up donating 37 acres of our 200 acre estate and uh, raising $10 million and built uh, Boulder Crest, Virginia. And that's kind of how it all started. One of the things that I noticed when I was doing some some background research, and like I said, anybody that lives in Loudoun County is involved in the community knows about Boulder Crest, but you are a pioneer in the field of post-traumatic growth. Could you explain what the science is behind post-traumatic growth, what that is, what you do uh, in, in that area, and how Boulder Crest is a leader in that? Well, let me tell you how I got to that um, first. So we were hosting, it was the first year we were open here in 2013. We were hosting a caregiver retreat. And at the time, word caregiver was kind of synonymous with young wives of guys who had lost their limbs. And I came into the retreat on Saturday, and there was a young, one of the young wives sitting in our music room by herself. 
And I went over to talk to her and I said, well, how's your weekend going? And she said, well, this place is beautiful. I can't believe you built this for us. She said, but I wish my husband would have lost his legs. And I didn't know this woman. She didn't know me. And I was like, I was kind of flabbergasted. I, was, I thought, wow, that seems like a terrible thing to wish on anybody. And I said, well, why would you wish that? And she said, well, all these other wives, everybody knows what's wrong with their husbands, but nobody knows what's wrong with my husband. And I said, well, what's wrong with your husband? And she said, well, he's got post-traumatic stress disorder. And I knew a little bit about post-traumatic stress. I got busted up real bad in a parachute jump halfway through my military career, suffered a little bit myself, grew up with a grandfather who was a World War II and Korean War vet who had severe PTSD and alcoholism and those types of things. But I, I didn't know enough. Just by happenstance, the next day, Sunday, my wife and I were in Frederick, Maryland, having lunch, and there's a small museum in Frederick called the Military Medical Museum of the Civil War. And in the front window of this museum, it was open, was a book titled PTSD from the Civil War to Vietnam. So I went in and bought it, read it, started doing some research about, you know, quote unquote, innovative things that were happening with PTSD treatment, uh, because I kept hearing that, you know, soldiers don't like to go see shrinks. and Soldiers don't like this and soldiers go to see a therapist and they drop out of treatment. I kept hearing all these things. And I was really, as a senior enlisted guy in the military, I was really familiar with the failures of drug and alcohol treatment. And I I started to kind of put mental health treatment in the same kind of vein is that, you know, it wasn't working. People would go and then they'd drop out, you know, all this recidivism and all these types of things. So I started researching innovation and mental health care, and I took a trip around the U.S. I went to Harvard, Chicago, San Francisco, San Diego, Los Angeles, and talked to some of the top psychiatrists and psychologists in the country, which, by the way, every one of them that I spoke to said to me what we were doing for veterans wasn't working. And finally, I asked one lady, uh, uh, mentioned this to me, a psychiatrist in San Francisco, said the exact thing to me was what we would do for combat veterans doesn't work. And I finally, I said to her, if it doesn't work, I said, why the hell do we keep doing it? And she said, well, you know, it's the only thing the insurance companies reimburse us for. And then the light bulb started coming on. You know, I realized that we were bound by this system of insurance reimbursement, pharmaceutical solution, people looking for the easy solution to care, you know, all those types of things. So I kind of thought, well, there's got to be something better. On this journey I had planned, the last stop that I planned was at the University of North Carolina with a doctor by the name of Rich Tedeschi, who now over 40 years ago, about 35 years ago at the time, had coined this term post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And I had read some of his research and wanted to talk to him. So I stopped there. He's an amazing guy. He had coined this term with a colleague, a guy by the name of Lawrence Calhoun, after they had spent years researching families who had lost children, primarily lost children to cancer. And what they had found out that these families that were in this situation had gone on to do some very remarkable things in the aftermath of their trauma. And not that any of these families wouldn't give up anything, including their own lives, to have their children back, but they couldn't. So what they did is they found a way to help others. And um, and there were some other interesting stories. I don't know if you remember the Newtown, Connecticut Elementary School shooting. Some families from that Newtown, Connecticut 
that we that we that we would idolize today as post-traumatic growth cases, these families have created a task force. And whenever there's a school shooting, they go around, they fly to these different locations to be there with these other families who are suffering to to let them know that there's there's success beyond the trauma. And um, and that story resonated with me because as a young child, I lost my mother to cancer. I was seven years old when my mom died at the age of 29. And I remember for the rest of my life, my grandparents saying, you should never bury your children. So the story resonated with me, but it didn't necessarily resonate with the audience that I spend most of my time with today, which is military uh, and veteran personnel. And um, I said to Tedeschi, had you ever done any research? On, mil- on the military. And he said, well, actually, we did. We studied prisoners of war uh, from the Vietnam War. And I, I was really interested in that. And I said, well, why, what did you learn? And he said, well, about 30% of Vietnam vets came home from war with PTSD, which arguably is true for our modern-day uh, generation. And he asked me, he said, well, how many prisoners of war do you think came home with PTSD? And I didn't even take a breath. I said, 100%. <laughs> And he said, well, that's interesting. Why why do you say that? And I said, well, you know, I've been in combat. I've been in SEER school, which is the school in the military where they teach you how to evade capture or how to behave if you get captured uh, and try to escape, those types of things. And I thought to myself, I can't personally think of anything worse on the battlefield than getting captured and tortured. And not like the terrorists do today where they, you know, they get you and put you in an orange jumpsuit and put you on CNN and 24 hours later, kind of chop your head off, you know. But in, in Vietnam, these men were in prison camps for anywhere from four months to, to eight years. And Tedeschi said, no, it wasn't 100%. And, I, and, and, and I, I started kind of going down 90, 80. I finally got to 30, thinking they would be online with their peers. And he holds up four fingers. And he says, no, it's 4%. And I said, what? And I, I was having a hard time rationalizing it. And I said, how do you, how do you, you know, justify that. He said, training. And that's when, when the light bulb kicked on. And I thought, training, how did they get trained? And I knew some of the stories about Stockdale. Stockdale was the senior naval officer in, in the Hanoi Hilton. And he was a stoic. He had, he was a well-read individual. He's very smart. And he really focused on teaching the men who were in these prison camps how to instill hope in their lives, knowing that it's someday the the time they spent in these prison camps would become the defining moment of their lives. And that that hope was on the other end and that our country would never let them down. And at some time they would be released from these cells. And as most of these prisoners of war will tell you today, that the the prison wasn't the eight foot cells they were in. It was the eight inches between their ears. And that's the case with with PTSD too, is that we end up getting into our own mind and we can't get out of it and, and, and it becomes very difficult. So I said to Tedeschi, it's one thing to study post-traumatic growth and see that 20 years later, people have done some amazing things in their life. But do you think that we could train people who are suffering with PTSD, how to come out of that and how to, how to thrive in the aftermath of their trauma in a quicker way? And he said, you know, nobody's ever asked me that, but I'd love to help you. And really, that's what led us on to our programs. We started creating these programs along the, uh, based on the science of post-traumatic growth. That the highest level definition of post-traumatic growth is what doesn't kill us actually makes us stronger, as many people have heard. But the true meaning behind post-traumatic growth is that there are 
things you can do to help you thrive in the aftermath of your trauma. So if we take the traumatic time that we're they're suffering with and take those times to kind of be introspective and learn more about us and ask them hard questions about ourselves. What can we do to be a better version of ourselves? You know, what's my purpose here on earth? What am I supposed to be doing for society? Those types of questions. And if we can answer them honestly and start working towards an improvement process, we can surely learn how to thrive in the aftermath of trauma. And that's really what we do at Boulder Crest. We run these programs that are very intense. They're retreat-based setting programs. They're all the programs are 18 months long, but we start with a 17, a seven-day intense retreat at one of our facilities. And then the 18-month the portion of the follow-up is all done online. And that's that's kind of what we do. And that's really what post-traumatic growth is all about. Ken, if you could give us an example of some of your experiences with those suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, what they go through, how it manifests itself, what their experience is, if you could share that with us. Right. Well, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is, is a label. I actually spoke to it. It's an interesting label. The, the guy that led the DSM, which is the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual for Mental Health Care, the guy that led the diagnosis in 1984 that, that labeled PTSD, his name is Frank Okenberg. And I actually spoke to Frank about five or six years ago when we were doing the work for our programs here at Boulder Crest. And he said to me that, that creating this post-traumatic stress disorder label was, was maybe the biggest mistake he made in his professional career. Really? It was interesting because I said to him, uh, why do you say that, Frank? And he said, because labels are very heavy, heavy to carry, very heavy burden to carry. And I have always, in some form or fashion, I've always believed that. When I broke my back in 1989 <clears throat> in this parachute jump in Puerto Rico, I was told initially that I might not be able to walk again. I went on to walk. I was told my military career would be over, that I would never be able to pass the physical test. I broke my back in March of 89. By December of 89, I ran the best PT test of my military career. Really? And oh my um, Now, a part of me thought maybe it was because of this doctor who motivated me and challenged me for not being able to do something again. I think some of that, sometimes that tough love is, is healthy. But the other, the other thing was, I had gone outside of traditional Navy medicine for care. And in 1989, I actually was seeing a chiropractor in Virginia Beach where I was stationed. And as you can probably recall, in 1989, chiropractors were looked at as witch doctors. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I, so since 1989, I've always been a big fan of kind of this non-traditional approach to medicine. And, and after researching a lot and seeing what westernized medicine has become, being privileged to have had med medical care in the Department of Defense. I'm a disabled veteran, so I can get care at the VA. You know, I've been to many other types of hospitals, local hospitals. And also my wife and I are, you know, are privileged that, that we can afford to private pay med medical care. And, and we do our, our annual physicals down at the Mayo Clinic, which is arguably probably the best medicine, you know, in the country. And I've seen medicine at all these different levels. And I just, I just get so frustrated with, you know, quote unquote, the system and, pe and then people blaming the system for most of the time their own incompetence. And, um, 
And my goal was to really figure out, you know, why do we keep giving people labels? And in and, and, and mental health care, you know, it's bipolar, it's this, it's that. But what's happened is the, what the mental health community has done to themselves has fallen into this victimhood of insurance reimbursement where they require you to, in fact, have a diagnosis and a treatment protocol to get reimbursed and get paid for the services. So in one form and fashion, I feel very sorry for the professionals that, that do this work uh, because they, they are burdened by, by the system, if you will. Uh, but I also find it very frustrating because we have hundreds of millions of dollars that go into these associations for the, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers that continue to proliferate this stuff through policy. And, um, and, and, and it's, it's just bad. I mean, it's just in the military. I can tell you, we've got the, there's a, the latest one is special operator syndrome. There's uh, moral injury. There's survivor's guilt. There, I mean, we have created more labels since 9-11 for mental health care of veterans than, than we ever have. And, and PTSD on top of that. But what PTSD by definition says is that, that you, in fact, were somehow involved in a life-threatening traumatic experience that a month later after this experience, you're still having nightmares, you're still having flashbacks, you're still having trouble sleeping. But listen, I broke my back in March of 89. Occasionally, I made a thousand parachute jumps after that jump. Occasionally, I still have a a nightmare about that, that day. But I don't feel like it's ever disabled me. I don't feel like it's ever created this disorder and held me back from being successful in life. And that's what I worry about a lot with these labels is that people accept the labels. And then, and then as Dr. Uh, you know, Frank uh, told me, and that I knew, I think very, very clearly is that they become very heavy to care. And, um, and, and, and that's a burden that's, you know, that'll stick with you for a very long time. So, yeah. you know, at Boulder Crest, we, we see men and women that have, have seen, you know, the worst that humanity has to offer, you know, and, and that's whether it's on the streets of Loudoun County, uh, law enforcement or fire, you know, car accidents with dead bodies in the vehicles, or, you know, the things that our, our cops and firefighters see every day uh, or the military guys who, you know, have been in combat and, and really seen, like I said, the worst that humanity has to offer. And you see this stuff and it just doesn't leave you. And, uh, and, and, and it's about how you put it into perspective is what it's all about. And, and, and that's what we try to do here is teach people that, yes, you've seen this stuff. Yes, there's nothing we can do to change the past, but you can learn how to live in the present and plan for a future, knowing that these things are never going to, never going to go away. Right. It's, it's always going to be right. some form of fashion. And I understand the the program itself is Warrior Path P A T H H. Is that is that right? That's correct. It stands for okay. Progressive and Alternative Training for Healing Heroes. And I think this was you referred to this earlier. Eighteen months of post traumatic growth and and whatnot. Is that is that the program itself? Is that eighteen months long? It's eighteen months long. It starts with a seven day. We call it an initiation, but a seven day retreat based program. That's very intense, like military and and, uh, training. It starts at 6.30 in the morning with physical training, and it ends at 8.30 at night around a campfire. And we're not singing Kumbaya. It's very, very tough 
get to know yourself stuff. And, um, and then when they leave the seven day initiation from one of our, our sites, then they, the rest of the 18 month program is done online and our, our instructors join them about seven times during that 18 months. But it's a cohort based program where the six men or women who have gone through the program together help each other on this journey. And then we feed them content, you know, training material on through an online uh, system that we run here called MyPath. How many people are going through the training simultaneously helping each other? During COVID, you know, the, the ideal number is eight. But during COVID, we backed the number down to six um, uh, just so we didn't have to have anybody sharing bathrooms in our facilities. Okay. So, um, it's between six and eight people, which we think is the right number. And, and then our instructors will, will equal that. So there's kind of a one-to-one ratio in the program of an instructor to a student. Is this a, a live on campus, uh, if you will, program for 18 months? Yeah. Yeah. The, and, you know, traditional care, we would call it an intensive inpatient program. Uh, really? Then the out, the 18 month portion, they're back at home. But the seven day portion is here. Um, at, at one of our facilities. What's the success rate? I don't even, I'm not even comfortable labeling it as what's a success rate because it's, a, I'm just struggling for a better term. The results that y'all get, you know, how would you characterize it? Is it everybody comes out better than they started? Are there some times where they're just irreparable? What helped me characterize that appropriately? Yeah. Well, you know, so a lot of people ask why, you know, why do we do what we do? You know, you don't have to, and probably most people that are listening aren't that far out of touch. 20, roughly, I mean, we don't even know the exact number, but let's just say for argument's sake, 20 veterans a day take their own lives. More law enforcement officers and first responders died last year by suicide than in a lot of duty. So that's our mission really is to help to help to get people into a better place so that they don't take their own lives. And so how do we how do we kind of characterize the quality of care? So in traditional mental health care, it kind of goes like this. I don't feel well. Go see my primary care doc. Maybe they medicate me. Maybe they send me to a, a mental health professional. I end up in a mental health professional's office, and there's two really major forms, maybe three major forms of treatment. Prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy. And EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and, and reprogramming, and which is really a concept of somebody waving something in front of your eyes while they're doing prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. So those are the three kind of major things. If you see a prescribing psychologist or a psychiatrist, it's, it, there's a very high likelihood that you'll also get medication, which, by the way, the top eight medications for anxiety and depression have suicide as a side effect. So the fact is that none of this makes any sense to me. So that's kind of, you know, where the system goes. Most of these protocols based on insurance reimbursement will last anywhere from about six to 12 weeks in life with one major goal in mind, which is reducing the symptoms. So if you have PTSD, and, and, the way, and the way they know you have PTSD is you take this multiple choice test, you answer a few questions. If you score above, let's say a 38 for argument's sake, um, on this, on this, uh, 
on this uh, PTSD. You you get the label. Yeah. You get the label. <laughs> you get the score, you get the label, right? You yeah. win. You win. It's a winning lottery ticket, right? And which, by the way, a couple of interesting things. So we, our, our measurement tool that we use is something called the PCL-5, which is the post-traumatic stress checklist. Most providers, including uh, primary care doctors, use something called the PHQ-9, uh, which was actually invented by Pfizer, who makes four of the top leading drugs for depression and anxiety. So that's the, you know, the, the truth behind a lot of this stuff. And, um, and then in this 12 week period of time, the, the mental health professional's goal is to reduce your symptoms. So if I can get you from a 38 to a 34 in 12 weeks, I can call that success because you're below the clinical threshold of PTSD. Now that all sounds great, but the true opposite of suicide. And by the way, by week 14, most people who had dropped below this clinical threshold of PTSD are back to where they were before the treatment ever started. So the recidivism rate is very, very high, very similar to drug and alcohol treatment. But the true opposite in my mind, in, in my, my team's mind here, the true opposite of suicide really isn't about the symptom reduction, right? It's not making you feel less bad um, or what we would call living with this diminished version of ourselves. But the true opposite of suicide is living a great life. Because if I'm living a great life, I won't take my life. And that, to us, is what's most important. Now, how do we measure that? We measure it through things like quality of, quality of life indicators. Uh, Tedeschi and Calhoun created a measurement tool called the post-traumatic growth inventory. So we measure that. And we look at these quality of life improvements because that's really what we're interested in. Yes, we want to see symptom reduction. But, but more importantly, we want to see quality of life improvements. And that's how we measure it. Now, we studied, scientifically studied this program for 18 months, 50 people who had been through the program and compared it to traditional mental health care. And I can tell you that what we do here is about five times as effective as traditional mental health care. Uh, There's a lot of, uh, from what I can tell, seems to be a lot of not just treatment. There's a lot of wellness mixed in. You said there was physical training. I'm a big believer in mental health is larger than just talk therapy and drugs. It's an, it's a lifestyle change, lifestyle choices, making yourself physically healthy as well as mentally healthy. I think is equally important. Am I right about that? Is that how you all conduct this program as well? A lot of wellness and uh, associated with it. Yeah. So there's four areas of wellness that we focus on. Mine, we do things like meditation, readings, um, journaling, uh, some really interesting work uh, there. We expose them to some some work with horses, uh, some equine ther- therapy um, uh, related stuff. We we do some art therapy while they're here, just to expose them to a lot of different things that they may not be able to get access to. Not everybody likes everything that we do, but they find something that we do that helps them. Because really, what we're talking about is helping helping humans create this ability to self regulate. Because our saying here at Boulder Crest is if you can't self-regulate, you self-medicate. And, and self, once you, once you go down that way of, of, you know, large quantities of alcohol, drugs, it's very difficult to come back. You know, if you're yeah. drinking a half a bottle of vodka at night to get to sleep, uh, you're not going to sleep well. And then you're not going to wake up well and the rest of the day goes bad. So that's what we focus on in the mind. The body is very important, right? And, and it comes down to simply kind of, are you fat or are you and when I say fit, I don't mean that you need to be a bodybuilder or a marathon runner. 
It's just that you need to be able to walk up the stairs without getting out of breath. You need to put yourself into a place in life where diabetes isn't going to overrule your, your wellness. Um, these onset, adult onsets of diabetes, or, you know, I mean, it's brutal. It's just a brutal way to, to live the end of your life. If you look at our nation as a whole, we spend a lot of money in healthcare in this, in, in this, you know, latter part of our lives. And we, there's no reason that I'm, and I'm almost 60 years old. And there's no reason that 70 and 80 years old, we shouldn't be as healthy, maybe not as fit, but as healthy as we were when we were 30 or 40. Uh, and, and, and we have the ability to do that if you eat right and you exercise. And that's what we focus on. Physic and physical, in the physical side, we, we focus on nutrition, flexibility, uh, uh, fitness itself, hydration. We you know, talk a lot about those types of things. The other element of wellness we focus on is financial wellness. We've seen a lot of suicides, especially with white um, males, where financial burdens had over, over, overburdened. You know, the stress that overburdened their lives and, and, and they felt that the, you know, the way out of that was to, to take their own lives and maybe let their family have their insurance policy or something. So we focus on financial wellness, which we feel is very important. Most of that is done in the 18 month journey, but we do touch on it during the seven day program. And then finally is spirituality. And we, and we define spirituality in a very non-religious sense in three ways. The first one is basically our character are we really the man or the woman that we say we are are we doing are we a good citizen are we that person of of value to this society uh, or have we become a, a burden in society and how do we get our character realigned and, and military men and, 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 and first responders know that because their basic training is all about character and most of the time people that kind of go into service public service of some sort are service-oriented people. So that's the next thing we operate on is, is what are we doing for others? So our character is our first element of spirituality definition. Our second definition for character or for uh, spirituality is service to others. What are we doing to help others? You know, John, you and I live in the richest county in the United States, but we have food banks here. We have women abuse shelters. We have an uncountable number of animal uh, adoption centers and, and, and and rescue facilities. I mean, there are a lot of problems in Loudoun County, Virginia, that we can all pitch in and help. No fix, question. Fix our community, right? And then the third element of spirituality is, is your relationship. We believe, uh, as many wellness experts do, we believe that humans become the average of the three to five people that spend the most time. Spending three, you know, you're spending your time in a bar with three to five drunks, you're going to be a drunk. You're spending <laughs> time with three to five drug addicts, you're going to be a drug addict. If you're spending time with gang members, you're going to be a gang member. Uh, but what can you do to make sure that the network that you are spending your time with is healthy? Because that's going to rub off on you as well. So that's kind of how we measure spirituality. If people who come here are very religious, we find that their religiosity will expand as well. But, you know, we, we, we look at spirituality as the fourth element of wellness. So mind, body, finances, and spirituality are what we try to improve and provide philosophy for during this eight-month journey. Right. As with any mental health struggle, the suffering and the burden of it is shared. It's certainly not as profoundly felt by those around a person suffering from a mental health issue, but families and friends oftentimes are 
severely burdened by watching their loved one go through this. And I would imagine you all have programs for families and spouses as well and caregivers maybe uh, for these men and women that are going through what they're going through. Is that right? It is. And, and we, you know, I use the term contagion and these, these, these issues, depression, anxiety, PTSD, they are contagious in the family. And, uh, and, and, and because of that, because I have a military family, a wife, you know, been by my side for the last 38 years, two daughters, uh, two daughters that I spent hardly any time with as, as children. I was always deployed, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and we understand the value of a family and the importance of keeping that together. So we have a, we have our warrior path program, which is our, our combat veteran and first responder program. We have a family path program. And then we have another program that we do for couples, uh, caregivers, and then gold star family members, families who had lost loved ones uh, in combat. So um, those are kind of the, the, the family programs that we run. And then when we're not running one of our more sophisticated, you know, kind of quote unquote mental health programs, we use our facilities, both Virginia and Arizona, to allow families to come here and stay for what we call R&R, which is rest and reconnection time. So like many vacations where the families can come here and enjoy uh and enjoy a break and spend some quality time together. And mostly it's young enlisted families or young cops and firefighters who, you know, can't afford a vacation. Our, our generous donors have, have helped offset the cost of, of what those, what those breaks cost. You, you I, I wasn't aware as, as, as familiar as I have been with your program over the years, I wasn't aware that there was a first responder element to it. And unless you've been under a rock in the last 18 months, Lord knows that the already very difficult job of being a first responder just got a heck of a lot harder in the last, uh, at least, yeah, at least year, 18 months. Is there any difference between the programs? In other words, do you have six to eight veterans doing the program together? Do you have six to eight first responders in the program together? Do you mix them in? How does that work? Yeah. So um, I'll tell you how we got there and then maybe why you, you weren't up, up to speed. After the Vegas I had a board meeting the day after the Vegas shooting. And the, the, the Jason Aldean concert shooting? Yes. Yeah, okay. And wow. one of my board members said to me, what are we doing for first responders? Now, I kind of wanted to slap myself because my, my dad was a D.C. cop. My dad, my dad got out of the Army and became a cop here in D.C. in 1961. And, uh, and then my mom and I moved down from Pittsburgh two years later in 1963 to be with my dad. Uh, and my dad was here doing, you know, probably the worst times in D.C., which were the Martin Luther King uh, riots. And um, and I know some of that stuff sat heavy with my dad for years. He's no longer with us, but I, I, I felt bad being the son of a cop, you know, not not allowing first responders. It wasn't that we didn't allow them. We had a lot of cops and firefighters go through our programs early on, but most of them were former military guys and former Iraq and Afghanistan veterans because a lot of military guys get out and, and pursue uh, law enforcement and first responders like work. And, um, but we, but we weren't allowing first responders or cops to, to, to come into the program who weren't military. And we, we changed that after the Vegas shooting. We do run some all law enforcement slash first responder program. And when I say first responder, it's a pretty broad gray area. I mean, I, we think of cops, firefighters, EMTs, some federal cops. We've had ATF agents. We've had right. DEA agents, you know, 
uh, Secret Service agent recently. Some guys come through the program that are federal law enforcement too. So I use that term broadly. Um, but we do an all some all first responder programs, and then we do a lot where they're mixed in as well. So a little bit of both. And, um, and we're actually doing a pilot project right now in Miami, Florida, and we're we're excited about that. There's a stain in mental health care that hurt people hurt people. And one of the things I'll say to your listeners is there are people in the mental health profession that aren't well. You have the right to pick your therapist. So it's really important when you go out, you know, to the different doctors that you know that you're in control. They're not. You want to pick a therapist that you connect with and that works for you. But there's also a saying in, in law enforcement that hurt cops hurt people. And there's a lot of trauma in, 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 the, in the world of first respondership. And that's what we're trying to do is show that if, if you can create a department of wellness that, I mean, I, I, my hat's off. You mentioned Mike Chapman. We have the most amazing sheriff here, right? And, and, and law enforcement group in Wild County, they really look out for the wellness of this, of this organization. Well, if every department did that, then you wouldn't have maybe some of the problems that we see on, on the streets. And, and that's one of the things, you know, beside the fact, you know, that there's some jerks on the streets and some very unsafe responses that people do. We, we also have to respond to those well. And, um, otherwise you end up with, you know, some of the things that we've seen on the news recently. And, and I, and I don't want to go into that political side of my conversation, <laughs> but I do think that it's important that people who are doing these life saving jobs are in fact well. Amen. Yeah, my, uh, we had Sheriff Chapman as a guest early on uh, in the podcast, and one of the key leaders in making sure CIT training is uh, at the forefront of law enforcement and 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 protecting the mental health of his of his uh, deputies as well. I want. I was curious though. Boulder Crest. W- tell me about the name. How did that? How did that come about? Well, when my wife and I so. My wife and I, my wife's from London. She's an only child. Um, her parents passed away and we sold the house they lived in in London and went on this mission to buy a beach house. We were, we were, my company and our home were in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And this is in 2008. After searching around the, 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 the area for the, the beach house we wanted, uh, we ended up on Blue Ridge Mountain Road in Loudoun County, Western Loudoun County on top of uh, Mount Weather. We bought a beautiful 100-year-old stone farmhouse with 200 acres of land. Uh, and the name of the house is Boulder Crest. Uh, yeah. Built out of stone boulders and at the top of the mountain, the crest of the mountain. And um, and we didn't want our, our names on, on the retreat for lots of different reasons. But we wanted it to have some connection to the land because this land is really cool land. You know, the land out here was surveyed by... George and John Washington, you know, revolutionary and, and civil war soldiers, you know, camped out here. So there's some really cool aspect to this. And we wanted to have some tie to the history of, of the property. So we actually named, named it after the house. And, um, I think if I had to do it all over again, we would probably do something different, but people know us now and, uh, and it's a strong brand and we, and we love it. And I understand you're a coffee maker too. I'm not a coffee maker, but we have a partner who's making an amazing coffee for us, roasting an amazing coffee for us called Struggle with Strength. So if you're struggling in the morning and you need some strength, uh, uh, order some of our coffee. It'll help you get going. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those. <laughs> one of those for sure. Well, 
Ken, I can't thank you enough for being on. I mean, we cover, we, I could, we could do this all day, just talking more in depth about your program. If somebody wanted to get involved, donate, volunteer their time, what's the best way for them to reach out and, and, and get in touch with somebody at Boulder Crest? Well, that's, um, that, that's a great question. I always tell people there's three ways you can help any nonprofit. And we're no different than these three ways. The first one, which doesn't cost you anything, is to, is to follow us on social media and to share as much as you can. Uh, you may not have the resources to volunteer or to donate money, but maybe somebody in your network does, and that's very helpful. So follow your favorite nonprofits and, and share the share, share the news. Uh, the second way is to volunteer. We have a lot of great volunteers out here. I mean, and it's everything from shoveling horse manure to painting fences to washing dishes to serving food. There's some great opportunities to volunteer. We're actually recruiting volunteers for our up-and-coming golf tournament in Lansdowne right now. So, uh, And we do individual volunteers, and we do corporate volunteers. We have a lot of companies that come out here and do corporate volunteer days, and those are really exciting and fun, too. And then third, you know, we're 100% privately funded, and, uh, and every penny that gets donated into this organization is, uh, you know, helps us to, to, to meet our budget and our goals. So. We're open. You know, we've found ways since since June of last year to be open during COVID. And we're almost to our 1,000th person coming through uh, mm-hmm. Warrior Path. And all of our programs, we see about, between Arizona and Virginia, we see about 1,500 people a year. But our Warrior Path program, I think in, I think this month in May, we'll see our 1,000th 1, 1, uh, wow. participants. So. It's a uplifting and joyful thing to hear how many people you've helped it's also a very sad thing that that's that's uh, that's how many people have needed your service i'm sure there's thousands more that that you could help well ken thank you uh, i i'm just can i give a, a quick plug bouldercrest.org is your website i've been all through it there's some great video tremendous amount of resources a very good explanation more in depth than we were able to get to today about the warrior path really interesting history of the two gentlemen uh, that sort of originated the post-traumatic growth treatment program. And I would encourage anybody who's got 15, 20 minutes of time and wants to learn about something that will brighten your day, brighten your week, brighten your month and your year, uh, go get a, a, you know, go on bouldercrest.org, buy some coffee and donate a hundred bucks to, uh, to the cause while you're there. So Ken, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you today. Yeah, thanks, John, for doing this. And uh, the only other thing I would say is we actually wrote a book called Struggle Well, Thriving in the Aftermath of Trauma. If you're interested in the work, pick that up. It kind of gives you a really good overview of what we're doing here. For Absolutely. Us. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ken. Thank you very much. And uh, looking forward to having you on again soon. Good. Thank you. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review, and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.